0: Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Flail Forward. We have with us today Catrice.
1: Hi. <laughs> Sorry. Mark. Hello.
0: Hi. And uh and we have a special guest with us, Mr. Mike Myler, not Mike Myers, the, the stabby guy from the, the scary beep, movie.
2: Beep, beep, beep.
0: That's the other scary, stabby guy from the other movie. <laughs> um
1: I don't know how stabby this one is just yet. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a different Mike Myers. probably going
3: to be a Halloween episode by the time it goes out.
0: Oh, yeah. It will be Halloween. I'll get get the soundtrack in here and rip it off. Uh, Mike's got a... uh, Can I call you Mike? Yeah. Cool. Mike's got a a, a fifth edition game up on... Uh, Game on Tabletop, actually. Game on Tabletop. On Game on Tabletop right now. We'll throw a link in the the description so you can uh, check that out and we'll we're going to talk to him about uh, being a freelancer. He's been a freelancer for, for five years now. And,
2: uh,
0: uh yeah. yeah. Five years. Uh,
2: I think, I think it's, it's been, I think we're working on six. So yeah. Yeah. Something like that.
0: Fantastic. Nice. And, uh, we're going to ask him about, uh, that, that gig and, uh, fifth edition and, uh, uh D in general, probably in gaming in general and game design in general and all kinds of general stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh but uh, for the opening question, I want to ask: um, What got you into design, and uh, what were you trying to fix about Dungeons and Dragons?
2: Well, I mean, I wasn't trying to fix anything. I uh, my last like proper employer uh, stole a bunch of money from me, Ooh. and I had to go to court, and it was a whole thing. And I was, you know, not sure what to do next because uh, I had quit my job outside the city where I was a was like a construction foreman. And then um, I moved into the city and took, like, a job waiting tables to be, like, living with my now wife. And, uh, yeah, that restaurant screwed me real hard, and I wasn't sure what to do. And she's like, why don't you see if somebody wants to buy your D&D stuff that you spend all this time working on? Uh, And somebody did. And uh, after I sold the first one, it was like, uh, oh, it it was like one of those British drug movies. I just couldn't stop after the first one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you're like the train spotting of, of supplements? something Maybe like that yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that's an interesting uh well that's that's pretty cool though so what was your what was the first thing uh what was the first thing that got picked up
2: you know what it actually hasn't been published which drives me kind of insane uh, <laughs> the guy paid me so like I'm glad that you bought it thank you scorched earth publishing for buying it uh, it's called unrest in Sirente. it's like um a very uh, osr Kind of primordial adventure where, uh, if I remember correctly, you negotiate a peace or you lead like a battle between two desert tribes, uh, and it, it culminates on this this giant plateau. And and yeah, nobody I think will ever get to see it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it sounds cool. It's too bad. Um, yeah. But what's okay? So something that did come out, or what was the thing after that?
2: First thing that actually came out. But um, uh, man, you're you're asking me to go fucking way back.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So I yeah, p- uh, apologize for making you remember your own stuff. <laughs>
2: Clockwork Wonders of Brandel Hill is the first one. I, and I self-published that. And then uh, that was followed up by The Mysterious Peaks of Branthar. And then after that, I uh, I made it my first campaign setting. And I can remember everything after that. But okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> so, I do a lot of stuff that I don't get to keep calling my own that, you know, like, like Unrested and Tay, right? Like that's owned by mm-hmm. Scorchenter Publishing. Right. There's a whole series of articles I wrote for like, Pennies on the dollar for somebody that I, I don't want to reference because they don't need the, the business because they gave me a terrible contract. Um, yeah.
0: So, oh, but you've been basically doing full timing since then?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I jumped wow. in and uh, held my nose and have been flailing around trying not to drown. And I'm finally, at the point where I can like kick my legs and, and tread water decently, it's, it's cool. Nice. Well, you're among fellow flailers. For
3: other people who might actually start jumping in like you did. What would you suggest to do differently so that they don't have quite as much of a flailing along period as you
2: did? Uh, I mean, it depends on on who you are and what your priorities are. Like, first of all, if you have kids, don't don't attempt to do this full time off the bat. That's just a terrible idea. Uh, because uh, you have kids. I don't have kids, so it's not such a big deal. If I don't have money, or if I have to like uh, eat lean for a month. Um, right. Yeah uh what i what i would suggest i mean it's it's kind of on one hand it's easier now and it's also harder like there are more resources available um what would i do i mean (sighs) the best thing to look you know a much better example because i'm I'm trying to do stuff that's that's going to lead to a career that is that is bountiful years from now not necessarily worried about the immediate um but owen casey stevens actually has worked out a great great uh, methodology where he releases basically one PDF a week minimum. It's like 52 a year, and they're all small tidbits that people can, you know, blow $2.50 mm. on and, and enjoy, and then he, you know, sells them on one, then he sells them on two, three, four, five, six, seven, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's a little bit more art intensive, but there are more art resources that you can get stock for, and, and uh, yeah, I, I have a predication where I like really big books, because that's what got me into RPGs in the first place, right? Like, mm. I think it was um uh, well I mean 3.0 of D&D was huge but like the Forgotten Realms books and and, and Oriental Adventures uh poorly named as it was mm. um yeah once I got my hands on those I was I was sucked into the hobby and I couldn't get out and yeah. so yeah I want to make more big books and and although it is more profitable and reliable to do uh short snippets like Owen um I don't know that's not what I want to propagate in the industry so I work on on big huge tomes that take me like a year plus to make
0: cool man so with this one, it's, it's coming out now, where where did the sort of inspiration come from to do, I mean, because I'm seeing, like, from from what I, so I played 3rd edition quite a bit as well, and so I'm, like, getting definite, like, shades of Chult, like that part of the Forgotten Realms that was never really explored all that well. They sort of talked about it as, like, this overrun, jungly
2: Oh, dude, did you not bit. play Storms of x here Uh, (laughs) for neverwinter Nights 2 oh my god all right well after the podcast go download it it's so fucking cool there's an overland map so like you watch your character run around and then depending on what your your skills are affect how you interact with the overland map so like if you have a high uh i think it's survival then you have an easy easier time like seeing creatures from far away to avoid random encounters oh it's so cool interesting so good yes 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 um uh so what inspired Vast caveat? I really like Conan's stuff, and mm-hmm. um, all of my settings tend to be a little bit more on the tech side, right? So, like, uh Akuma is all this steampunk, and then Book of Exalt Darkness, there's this <laughs> deco-punk, like, 1920s-level era of technology, and then I have a cyberpunk book, and this, you know, Fallout love letter called 2099 Wasteland, and they're all... Technology's all a really big thing, so I wanted to make something for 5e that does not have anything to do with technology, that is, you know, anti deluvian in its approach to technology. So... <laughs> primordial
0: yeah primordial stuff yeah that's sort of like uh um not call like call the conqueror like sword and sorcery stuff that's uh even like precursor to conan um in in his particular timeline like i i yeah i I love the robert howard stuff and and it's cool seeing some of that stuff starting to filter back up through like the osr stuff because i feel like osr has leaned into conan for Quite a quite a while, you know. That, that's that's one of the things that's really like I think feel like OSR's sold a lot of people on the idea of like you get to play as Conan or uh, a Conan like uh, romp, but Five uh, E has kind of not gone there too hard yet. I feel like Five E is still leaning very much into like the heroic fantasy and the higher fantasy type stuff.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It feels much more uh, Lord of the Ringsy mm-hmm. than um, I don't know. And in, in the earlier setting, I mean, so when you we we were brought up in we were brought up in the days of third edition, where WotC was churning out like three bucks a month or some insane number like that. Two. Yeah. So like we we were from the land of plenty, as opposed to now where there's like it's been out for six or seven years and there's what eight books, nine books, something like
0: that. Nine big hardcovers, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's uh, they're they're. I, I feel like that's a much more tenable schedule.
2: Um, (laughs) Oh, for sure, for sure. They were going way too fast before. I would, yeah, I would prefer something in the middle of where before was and where we are now. But like, you know,
0: yeah, I I feel like even if you have like a very successful line, like even twelve products a year is a lot. They're uh, they're they're doing a slow trickle, which is probably pretty pretty wise. It gives people because you know it takes a while to digest RPG content, like. You get it you read the book and then you play through it with friends and that's you know hours cool. of of stuff and you do it on a weekly basis so like a book may not see use for a month two months after you buy it so i i think that's a pretty wise move on their part
3: keep in mind as well that not all of those books were going to be used by all people like back in like the days, they were thinking a lot more along the idea of if we just produce like a hundred niche books, then we'll catch like everybody on the market, everybody will have something out there that they want to play with. Whereas today, they're now like, okay, let's make sure that we don't produce as many, but it hits as many people as possible for each of them.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole marketing scheme has changed Dramatically, like before what marketing scheme was there, aside from being around and being like the only major publisher, and now it's like, you know here's billboards for our actual play thing that you watch at home because that's a thing now, yeah, which i I,
0: I don't understand the phenomena I, I I have to confess, like it's so odd to me uh but so is watching people play video games i guess i'm just- somebody
2: explained it to me they were like so like uh, if they're if you have like an hour commute to work okay mm-hmm. now i can kind of understand why you'd want to have like an episode of critical role to like listen to on your way into from. or like if they don't get to play D that week because of you know life sucking as an adult uh they can put it on while they do chores in the house and get like at least you know something for their degree. right but aside from those two very narrow things, I don't get it. Like, if you're sitting at your computer watching, like, what are you doing? You could be playing a game. Like You could be organizing a game of like, playing a game right now, but, like, you're just gonna watch these people play the Okay.
1: It's a lower barrier to entry, too, because I think some people have, like, never played D&D, but they get to watch it, and I think for them that's their... that's scratching that same itch, but they've never... I don't know. Either They're get, afraid they don't know the how to
2: approach game. it. Like, what do you mean I sit there and I say what my character does? Like, this is a strange concept exactly. to me because I... Have a very underdeveloped left side of my brain. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. I kind of which, which
1: I think is a big problem for the RPG industry, too, because I think people see it as this intimidating thing. Like, oh, I've never done it. I don't know how to do it. Uh, wouldn't know where to start.
0: Yeah. And part of it is they get trained actors to do it who are better at
1: right. acting and improving yeah. than most
0: other
2: people. Oh, be. you know what? I really enjoy Harmon Quest. Have you guys seen Harmon Quest? I have not. No? Yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's like a. They use Pathfinder, I think, but it's uh like the dude who made uh, Rick and Morty. Mm -hmm. His buddy DMs a game for him, and then uh, two other people that are always there, and then a rotating guest, and then they animate it. And so, like, I'm I'm into that. That's funny as fuck. But like, yeah, there's yeah, animation
0: is great. It's a cartoon. I would watch a cartoon. cartoon. Yeah, that's awesome. But okay, maybe I'll check that out. But I don't.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. for
2: sure, Harmon Quest is great.
3: Keep in mind that when people are watching like video game streamers, for example, it's not really the game that they're watching they're watching the person playing the game which is why it's always someone like pewdiepie or whatever because they're very animated they're very eccentric and very over the top like it's not just oh well an ogre pops out and attacks you and what do you do and oh well what should i do in this situation instead you make sure that the people who end up being famous doing this tend to be the people that freak the fuck out as soon as anything happens. So it's always something exciting for the people that are listening yeah. because they may not know anybody who does that.
2: And there's a level of interactivity too, right? Like, because Twitch, you can give widgets or whatever the hell they are and, and like, uh, potentially buy this or that. I mean, depending on what you're watching, I, I know there are some DMs where, like, and if people give me 10 tokens or whatever, I'll give the party a potion or this or that.
0: Right, that's that feels weird to me. Like audience participation. I mean, it's fine if it if
2: it inspired real world game stores to start making like um in in like in store uh like quarter machines where you can like pull out uh, a temporary bonus or something for the use of that day. And I hear that that's actually making them some money. So like, God bless. You
3: yeah. <laughs> know, I mean, yeah. it's a store. it's trying to get money. I'm not really big on the whole pay-to-win thing, but... I mean,
2: anything to help friendly local game stores at this point. I'm for.
3: I mean, yeah, I don't even have a local game store anymore.
2: That's what I'm saying. But Pittsburgh is lucky. We got, like, uh, three or four that are pretty strong and, and sticking around. But Mine is really small, but it's run by a blind guy, and he says he's the only blind game store owner in the world. Uh I believe that he's not really <laughs> blind. He's it's it's like yeah, uh, he's blind enough. He can definitely say he's blind, but like he can he can see oh, shit. See.
3: He can see some. <laughs> okay, stuff. okay. So
2: he's he's legally blind. <laughs> yeah, he's not he's not in the dark. Uh, but I don't think he can like recognize faces. It's, it's been a degenerative thing since he was in high school.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's,
2: I see. He's got to have everything read to him. He can't like read yet. So yeah. But yeah, Babcock Boulevard. If you're over in Pittsburgh, it's it's uh called Game Masters. Cool.
0: Yeah, I I like going to game stores when I travel across the U.S. or wherever I'm wherever I'm traveling. Like I like it's one of the things that I find interesting is like the different. You can kind of like get hints of the different gaming culture where you go. You know, like you walk into a place and you're like, oh, Magic is huge in this town. (laughs) You know, yeah. like or it's just like it's like oh, is that a
2: spaceship thing. you have in the back there, okay? So, uh, yeah. where are the it's Warhammer like, miniatures? Okay, okay right.
0: right, yeah, yeah, it's like a huge Warhammer store. It's like you know, um, they have like all the Star Wars stuff right, right up front or like its own section, like, and it's like, oh, okay, or, like there's a huge Star Wars following here, and you get, yeah, it's cool, not
3: necessarily, okay, that's unfortunately why one of the two attempts at stores in my town died off because the owner did not like children. <laughs> so wow. it's like all the kids are coming in. They want like Pokemon cards. So we tried putting them, you know, on the top shelf where they couldn't reach them and changing the store hours so that he closed as school got out. Uh, it's like this obviously wasn't good business decisions. <laughs> yeah
0: man that's uh very questionable yeah, yeah it is pretty questionable like, I, I remember the store in, in Long Beach where he used to go They when Pokemon hit big they bought the building they were renting <laughs> and they are like we don't have to pay rent anymore they... Fucking hell yeah yeah, man.
3: yeah. Uh, that's what happens if you get like smaller town and they're not uh thinking so much about the business aspect of things the scary part yeah. is He was the better business owner of
2: the two. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Better luck in the future with your game stores.
3: (laughs) No. It ain't happening.
0: It's up to you, Pat.
3: But, yeah. So it's good to hear that there are actually, you know, really good places. So, like, how would you describe, like... The culture of your local game stores, and do you think they would actually, you know, put your stuff on the floor?
2: Oh well, I mean, Game Master sells my stuff. Um, uh, Fam of the Attic uh, is the one in Oakland, which is where University of Pittsburgh and, uh, or I'm sorry, Univ- yeah, University of Pittsburgh and CMU are. Uh, they're down in Oakland, uh, Carnegie Mellon. Um, they have sold my stuff. Uh, sh- yeah, some of the stuff they've sold, I've written in, and I don't think I, I, I was aware they bought it, or it was like you know, um, like dark. Like I got to work on Black Crusade. I know they sold uh, uh, some Black Crusade books, and then um, Pyzo the stuff that. I've worked on. I'm sure they sold. Say what?
0: Yeah, I have a special edition of that Black
2: Crusade. Uh, oh, I got to work on yeah. the uh, Tone Decay. That's why oh, there's cool, so man. many brain diseases in it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I showed up, and I was like, have you guys heard of ence- encephalopathic pathogens? And they were like, oh, what, the, what the what the?" And I was like, yeah, man, if you eat your dad's brain, and it, it instantly, like, the whole team was like, tell me more. I, I, I had to fight to get the Ludomorbus in. It's this giant, like, Nurgle kaiju made out of corpses, and it throws exploding corpses, and, like, GW was like, no, and and I, I convinced Fancy Flight. I was like, we have to push them on this. Like, you, come on. You have to and he did and they gave so like yeah now there's that's I, awesome now there's a corpse kaiju for Nurgle. I'm waiting for them to make a miniature for it because it is gonna be just amazing. Oh yeah, that'd be dope. I'm, right? yep. yep I, and, I'd buy that. I don't even play Warhammer miniatures. I'd fucking buy that in a second.
0: Uh, yeah, I have I have a 40k Nurgle army and a fantasy Nurgle army. So, Ooh. So that's yeah, right up yeah, your alley. Right up my alley, man. Yeah. So uh thank you for that. Appreciate it. Um I'm actually, I actually was curious about something. So you you've got um in this vast cavia, cavia cavia, how do you pronounce Cavier. it? Cavea. Cavia, vast cavia. Um, man, a mana stat. And uh, so what was what was the idea behind this? What was the idea behind adding a seventh stat here?
2: I always use thematic attributes in all my campaign settings. Uh, so for like hyper hypercore it's it's uh, <laughs> luck and reputation in uh, Twenty Nine Wasteland. It was um, luck, reputation, then also irradiated. It mattered how irradiated you are, because a lot like Fallout. Um, Book of Exalted Darkness. It's uh, sanctity and sin. Vakuma. It's haitoku, which means fall from virtue. So like, you can think about like dark side and uh, dignity, which is like how honorable people think you are. And I use them as ways to like um, <clears throat> enforce a certain narrative onto games, right? Because uh, what I found with campaign settings is that oftentimes people will take it and just do whatever they want. Uh, I have got this guy, God bless his soul. He bought a copy of *Book of Darkness*, and it's this really uh, luxurious, think like Rocketeer, that kind of that kind of setting, Decopunk. It's a very luxurious utopia with like this underside of evil, and you're supposed to play villains who are, are justified in bringing down this this faux civilization. And he. Made it into some space epic with Pokemon and other stuff that make me want to, like, you know, tear my skin off. But it's it's his. Like, he bought a copy. He should do whatever he wants with it, right? So uh, one way that you can kind of, like, keep things on track uh, for people who, who really like to go off the deep end is uh, thematic attributes. So you add it onto the sheet, and then it, it influences play. In the case of mana, uh, that's kind of, like, a, a way to give players a little bit more narrative control. So, like, there's no action required to use it, and depending on, like, what your associated mana type is, if you're, like, standing in water, and your mana type is water, the likelihood of whatever, like, little bullshit change to the narrative you want to make happening, uh, goes up because the conditions are right for it. So, um, yeah, and it has to do with, like, the world having, uh, this primal magic running throughout it. Like, there's no formalized magic, like, there are no wizards, period. Uh, but the world is new, so there is plenty of magic in it, it's just not been yoked by, uh, Bye. I
0: see. So 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 instead of going with codified spells, you're going with sort of more of a free form give me something here because this is my element type type deal. I get it. Cool.
2: Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean there are still a lot of spells. There are sorcerers and bards and stuff, but yeah. Everybody gets mana. Okay. Cool.
0: What and what was was there a game impetus behind that before, besides just enforcing the theme? Did you feel like that the, there was something lacking in the mechanical design?
2: Yeah, so like in, in Conan and other, like Fire and Ice is another great example. If you've ever seen Fire and Ice by uh, Ralph Bakshi, I love, love Fire and Ice to death. Um, there's moments where like stuff just sort of happens in the, the protagonist's favor. It's not because they did anything, and it's not because somebody else did anything. It just happened to be that, like that like that bit of rocky precipice gives way. And it helps move the story along, and it is you know obviously advantageous to to uh, the protagonist, but like there's no impetus for it, and uh, that's kind of what mana fills in this that that like extra narrative boost uh, that you'll find in in pulpier stories.
1: Perfect, yeah, perfect way to sort of fit in um, the feeling that you want to get from the game because the mechanics are already there for attributes, um, and all you've done is kind of added on with the existing system something that adds in so much flavor to tell what your games are like um, i think that's a great way to approach like hacking games or just like tweaking them in small ways to adjust for what you want the experience to be like
2: thank you yeah man So i've been i've been, been at it for a while it's uh yeah man is the the least impactful of of the thematic attributes i've done like um In Book of Zoldarnus, if your sin gets too high, you change into this weird flesh monster. Uh, If your Haitoku gets too high, Miss Vakuma, you change into like this crazy fast zombie. And uh, yeah, this time it's like no, your your mana goes up. It's a very static thing. Every time you level twice, your mana goes up by one in modifier. So,
1: I think these are the kinds of things that a lot of um, like full fledged, I guess, or like people who've made their game systems from scratch have started doing. Like these are the these are the steps of, I see something that I can do to add a theme, add a flavor, and then it transitions to full blown games. Um, have it's you
2: like dipping your dipping your toes into the fudge mechanics? Like exactly, fate and, and powered by the apocalypse. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So have you have you taken the steps of trying to design custom games as well?
2: Yeah, I um I wrote uh now in the what's old is new role-playing game system from EN World.
1: Yeah, okay, I have
2: that. Whoa, sweet. Yeah, dude, I wrote the modern action stuff. Oh, nice. Uh if you're playing Judge of Dread, the rules for driving around in your badass motorcycle came from me.
1: Nice. Ooh. Yeah.
2: I'm really that's happy awesome. about that. Uh so yeah, I did that. And then also um I have my own personal RPG that's not quite finished. Uh, But you can find it if you look up time gestalt on, or I'm sorry, time gestalt on Facebook.
0: Checking it out right now.
2: Yeah, yeah. I said I was going to release it like a couple years ago, and then the end of the year came, and I didn't have any time to finish it. So I was like, you know, here's here's the current edition. Everybody enjoy it. Um, It's very narrative driven, uh, but still adheres to a level 20 class system. It's it's neat. It's neat. Yeah, maybe someday I'll come back to it and properly do it. But
1: did you find? Did you find that working on other systems um, influenced your game design when you started doing the your own system, or was it something that you t- kind of took like a hard left to um, when when it came to designing what you wanted to see in games that wasn't already there?
2: I mean, well, I mean, one thing I know with time to stall was like there was a lot of stuff that I did with time to stall that happens in fifth edition that made me kind of mad because I wrote Time to Adult years and years ago. It was like, proficiency bonus? Son of a bitch! Right. But I'm not the first person <laughs> to make a proficiency bonus on a class-level game. Um, but uh, I, 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 when I made Now, it it had a very specific purpose, right? Because Morris had already written old and new, mm-hmm. so I was just kind of like making the extra jelly for his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Right. Um and it was like, okay, well, I know I want to. You know, martial arts going to be important. Guns are going to be important. Um, I made an organization system that I think he ended up putting in old as well. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had headquarters rules. I think it was in old, and then I I took those and I was like, bam! Here's the whole organization rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, <sighs> hmm, no, I. I, I it's weird. So like with Pathfinder and when I made Varantia, part of the like, great part about that was that there's this huge amount of compatibility already within the system. Like they made this huge, the NPC codex was one of the best books ever made for Pathfinder. It's just filled with like one through 20. Here's 20 fighters, here's 20 wizards, here's 20 bards. And um, so like hyperlink throughout Varanthia codex are, I don't know, like 120 characters I didn't have to build. I could just point people to, like, hey, here's the free resource. You can go check it out. Boom. Here's your. Here's the mayor of this town. Here's the head of the guard of this town. Um, and, like, that's just not been another opportunity to do something like that since because there's not as much built-in free infrastructure for 5th edition. Or, wow. hey, for that matter, any other game. Interesting. Um, yeah, so, like, it's, there, there are limitations to every system that define what kind of campaign settings I end up making, or whether or not I make campaigns or if I make, like, a full hack. Like, um, another thing that I did for Pathfinder that didn't quite work as well in 5th edition, uh, I really like Shadowrun, right? Conceptually, Shadowrun's amazing. Uh, The Shadowrun video games.
3: It's that emphasis of conceptually, isn't it? (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in practice, Shadowrun falls apart after uh, you hit, like, the mid-tier of the game, right? Because somebody gets uh, more than one drone, or they, God forbid, go into the Matrix or they get wired reflexes, or they get whatever the magical equivalent of wired reflexes is. So then, like, you end up sitting there while somebody spends 20 minutes taking their, you know, multiple actions, or I'm sorry, multiple turns in the same round, while you only get one. And uh, they were okay, I'm going to shoot somebody, i got to roll 40 dice, count them all out. Oh, well, did you dodge it? Okay, let me roll my 30 dice and count them out. Okay, well, now I'm going to soak it, and let me roll your damage and count those out, and by the time you're done, you've rolled 120 dice and spent how many minutes counting the dice? Like, it just... Stops being fun because the the ease of the game's flow gets so disrupted. So um, we made Hypercore Twenty Ninety Nine, which is like Pathfinder, but now it's in the future with hypercorporations and also superheroes. And uh, we tried to port that over to Fifth Edition, but like the the way the numbers work in Fifth Edition with attribute caps uh, really screwed with everything we had set up for the Pathfinder version. So yeah, there are limitations to every game system, and those. Inevitably, will will uh, have some influence over the materials you make to support them. That was a very poor rambling answer to your question. I'm sorry.
3: No, but that's kind of what we do on here. And rambling gives you a lot of extra context to be able to make sense of it. So please continue with that. <laughs>
2: well, yeah. Um, we did pour it over to 5th edition because I promised I would. Um, but it just, it's like, so with, and I, you can, if you check out MikeMiler.com, there's a bunch of examples of this. You can build anything in Pathfinder, especially with the hyper rules. Oh, and the other part of that, uh, Mythic Adventures was this really conceptually brilliant way to take Pathfinder and make uh, epic, like divine level games, right? So you could play a second level demigod using Mythic Adventures rules. The problem is that Mythic Adventures rules, Ended up being kind of boring because it turned your character invincible. Um, so we took the same concept, this like rules template you just kind of put over Pathfinder, but we took it to be like more exciting and deadly as opposed to just like bigger and badder. Um, and uh, yeah, that was the mm-hmm. other half of that. Like, That's yeah, one
3: of my interesting questions. So when you make things more deadly, what was your reasoning behind doing that? Was it to try to make the game seem more, you know, important for your characters to actually make life and death decisions, or what was the reasoning?
2: Uh it ups the drama. Uh so like uh instead of having like this even keel that leads to a crescendo, it's a whole bunch of valleys and troughs. Uh so by the time you get there you're like a little bit shaken. And that fits perfectly with the themes of a Cyberpunk feature game where you know people are firing magically sighted guns that are jacked into their brains and stuff.
3: Hmm.
0: What, what, so I'm I'm a little confused. So this HyperCore thing, was this was like an extraction of the rule set that, that was then? I'm, I'm
2: the Hyper quite... score system was the so, so HyperCore 29 is the, is the campaign setting. And then inside of that is the HyperCore system, which is like a, a 12-page hack of resources you lay on top of either Fifth edition or Pathfinder. The Pathfinder version, when you have that on there, you can make Thor, Spider Man, name the character. I can build it for you. Uh, with the fifth edition version, because of the way number caps work in the system, um, the it kind of maxes out around X Men level powers. So like I can make Cyclops for you or Beast, but um, probably not uh, Captain Marvel.
0: Okay, okay, I, I get it. Okay, so like the Hulk is out of bounds because of the way like yeah, strength is just capped. Okay, got it, got it. Got yeah.
2: it. The Hulk in D and d fifth edition would have a strength score of like 40 something, uh, which you just can't have as a player because it messes up so many things. You never miss. you'll kill pretty much everything. Uh, yeah. right right, right. there's
0: that 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 whole like bounded accuracy thing that that you know once you build once you build it into a game, like you have to abide by it or it just cracks in half. yeah.
3: No, I was just thinking of, uh, like the current game that you're working on, the Fast Caveat. Like, I'm just looking at the things that you have set up on there. Like, I keep looking over it and everything, and it's like, you've got all this stuff set up for the world, but the one thing that keeps standing out to me out of all the things that you've listed is the mentioning of there being virtually no economy for it and i know it's a little bit off topic but i'm kind of curious why you focused on like a very limited economy economy like you mentioned that like anything manufactured like rope and such is you know worth a lot more but if there's hardly any trading in the first place like how do you do things like you know an actual sword much less like a magical sword like magical equipment even exists like you have magic but it's not standardized formal magic so how do you do all this
2: well uh there is one natural resource in the world uh that is uh like a naturally occurring magic item called raw mana so if you think of the materia system from final fantasy 7 mm-hmm. uh, there you go that's raw mana uh, you get it it can develop with you if you hold on to it long enough. It gives very limited access to magic. Uh, you can potentially uh, you know, uh, cold-forge it into simple blades. And then, aside from that, we also have primitive weapon rules. So uh, there's a lot of uh, creatures who have resistance or immunity to non-magical weapons. Oh, I'm sorry. Immunity to non-magical weapons and then resistance to magical weapons. Uh, so in Vaskavia, if you happen to have a steel or iron weapon... Um, it counts as magical for overcoming damage reduction. If you have a bone weapon, it uh, counts as magical, and I think also Antler or Horn will count as magical. And they all have their own specific roles, too. Uh, squeeze onto the GM sheet. So, yeah, that's one way. We have primitive weapons available, and the prices on them change, but like when you are doing trading, it's not... like You might have some gold and, and have that to trade with, but most people will be more interested in bartering. So, like, you know, those are a nice pair of boots you have. I'll take, you know, that shield and your boots, and you can have my dagger. Um, and there are snippets of civilization, and that's what the warlords represent. But, um, yeah, I mean, part of it was was to make, make trivial stuff important. So, like, one of the core 13 tenets of the world that it's just, like, true no matter where you are, what warlord, what region, doesn't matter, is... Um, there's like no creation spells or if there are creation spells then they're they cost more to do it. So you can't just not worry about water and food because you have access to a third level spell slot in a bard. Uh that's no longer a case. You have to have a survivalist and like the rigors of survival which are important for a primordial game um uh, get put to the fore because uh yeah, that that restriction on on conjuration.
3: Okay, so that actually makes me uh, start thinking, especially when you started mentioning, like, materia and such. Like, did you ever actually end up playing, like, uh, Path of Exile or anything similar to that?
2: Uh, Path of Exile sounds familiar. Is
3: okay. that one of the,
2: the, CRP, the computer RPGs?
3: Yeah, it's sort of a Diablo-style game.
2: But... Oh, I don't think I got to play Path of Exile, but yeah, okay. I'm familiar.
3: Well, so I was a little curious about that because, like, one of the big things about it is that there's no currency in the game. There is trading, but there's no currency. The idea is that every single item in the game that you're going to be trading with, like, the currency is not like a gold piece. It's more like, it'd be essentially like a whetstone kind of thing. Like, it has physical value to it. You can actually consume it. So, if you use whetstone, okay, this. Uh, sword is now sharper it's better than it was before but you basically lose the whetstone to do it so therefore because it's a consumable item and it has inherent value it means anytime you get one of these it's a self-regulating sort of uh uh trade market kind of thing because even if even if you get the item, it doesn't actually mean that you're going to be using it to trade with someone else. You might actually use it itself. Sort of like if you collect water and you're in a desert, water has value. But if you give away all your water, you're kind of fucked. So you might actually not want to give away all your stuff, even if you basically have the equivalent of money. So if you consider doing anything like that in this kind of setting.
2: Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, the opening adventure, uh, it strips all, the like, you don't get anything from background, right? It's like, I think you have a choice between five suits of armor, none of which are heavy because there is no heavy armor. Um, And then, like, uh, maybe a couple of spears and then uh, maybe a bow, a couple of arrows and then some rope. And, like, there you go. There's your starting equipment. That's what you have because, you know, you're living in this primitive village (laughs) where there's, you know, you might have one guy who kind of understands how how making iron works. Um, yeah. And uh, it puts an emphasis on on resource management that uh, just really isn't there in 5th edition. It's not as bad as as previous editions with like Christmas trees, but um, yeah, I found in my 5th edition games very quickly, like as soon as somebody gets to a civilization or a settlement of, of considerable size, we have to spend an hour as they... Shop around and see what magic items they might be able to find and, and so on and so forth,
0: right? Right, right. Well, hmm, okay, so does your do you have anything then to compensate? Oh, hmm. Or we even start asking this question.
2: There are some compensatory uh, measures for the lack of uh, wizards because wizards are kind of like game design Swiss army knives, right? Uh, so uh. There are two classes in the book. One of them is called the Gemini. They're very cool, but they are not there for this purpose. Uh, the one that is, is the monster tamer. So uh, you can have, and I think it's, it maxes out like CR8 creatures or a CR8 creature. Um, and they kind of offer uh, utility, granted, not as wide utility as a wizard. But like, if you need to transport a lot of stuff, uh, it's really great if you have a huge size creature that is your friend that travels with you everywhere because it can just drag a sled.
1: Filled up with all your crap.
2: Um, yeah, so like uh, one of the one of the ways to get at the unique abilities and stuff in the game changes from uh, supernatural to a very crude and primordial route uh, by you know yoking uh, a beast or or aberration or uh, I think ooze is also an option. So That's cool.
0: hang, on, hang on, let me get this straight. Because if I'm picturing this, you're essentially this is this is this is the Flintstones. Where they're uh-huh. like, where, where? Okay, great. Where like the garbage disposal uh, <laughs> is a pelican?
2: I think it's more like a Boy and his Blob. But yeah, sure, yeah. That's... Okay,
0: Boy in his Blob. Another great analogy. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I I I dig that. <laughs> I like the idea of like yeah. I don't throw fireballs, but I do squeeze this thing's tail.
1: I don't know if that's yeah. I've be been either.
2: actually I've been playing a monster tamer in Storm King's Thunder, and it's 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 awesome.
1: But yeah hmm. cool okay do yeah. do most of your modules also have unique classes that you've designed for them or is that unique to specific game
2: let me think uh 29 in wasteland has uh four classes that are specific to it okay um boogers all darkness has three classes that are specific to it the occultist which is like when you want to make yourself into a monster um, Diabolists, which are demon summoners or uh, fiend summoners, I should say, and then um, mad scientists, uh, which are exactly what they sound like. Ooh, cool. uh, Mr. Fukuma didn't have any original classes, and neither did Hypercore
1: 2099. Okay. How do, how do you usually approach it when you're trying to design a custom class? Are you basing yourself off stuff from like the GM's guilds? Um, are you looking at existing classes that don't thematically fit and trying to retool them, or is it like, ground up?
2: I have a whole series of, of uh, articles about it Okay. on the website. Oh, um, nice. Where's the one about making classes? It's got like four main points. So uh, one, people if, are going to say like uh, that should be a subclass is the number one thing that you hear from people when, when you start talking about making a new class. First of all, uh, you, but I, subclass isn't a thing. There are archetypes, but subclasses aren't a thing. You go ahead and find the word subclass in the core book. Go look. Uh, so if you're building a new class, a stick needs to complement the existing central mechanics of the core classes and work with them, not copy or interfere with them. If it's copying or interfering with them, then you're probably making a very lengthy archetype, not an original class. Um, two, that's going to be about 4,000 words. So uh, again, you can go ahead and count, because I did the simplest classes in the core book take up 4,000 words, the rogue and the fighter. And most of them take up more than that. Um, I think the mystic, God forbid, the mystic playtest took up 11,000 words, right? So if you're not hitting something like that, and that includes all the fiction and context headers ahead of time. And like, how do you quick build this? Uh, and all the questions about your character, that, that header, all that should be 4,000 words or more. Um, <clears throat> What the class can do is just as important as what the class is. So the point is that each class serves a mechanical function, dealing damage, taking damage, avoiding damage, offering utility, etc., and a social function, uh, which can run the gamut. But you should keep that in mind when you're making it, because if you're only paying attention to one side of that equation, it's going to feel funky by the time you're done. And then uh, the last part is to remember that none of them exist in a vacuum, so uh, when you're building it, imagine that you are the most voracious and spiteful power gamer in existence, and try to stop you from power gaming the class. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's on MikeMiler.com. It's one of the like most recent 20 articles.
1: Perfect. We'll, we'll post a link in the description of our uh, podcast.
2: Yeah, it
3: sounds like that'll be an interesting one to read over. see what the more specific details
2: are on it as well. Well, I was involved in the. Um, Ian Sider ran a Kickstarter for a. Ian is a Patreon that I'm the editor for. Uh, it's awesome. There's like 1,100 people plus uh, who get five articles a month. You can join it for as little as a dollar a month. It's great. We're about to do Article 300. Um, we did a Kickstarter for a class book and uh, we got uh, $94,000 or $100,000, something like that. It was a lot of money. It was a big thing.
1: Wow. Congratulations.
2: Yeah, thanks, thanks. It was a good campaign. But yeah, if you're looking for more D and D classes, definitely check out a touchmore class. It's got a total of sixteen in them. I wrote four of them. They're great. Four and a half. I wrote out half the monster tamer. Well, I, I sourced another guy mostly because he was like the head of a very, very active gaming club, and I needed him to play test the heck out of it.
0: So. I see. Yeah, it makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Playtesting is very
3: uh, it necessary. Yeah. I was very much so noticing that when you were describing the classes that you had made for your various ones, three of the ones that you had mentioned were all focused around, you know, monsters and such. Is this a uh, particular preference of you in particular, or just it made sense at the time was all?
2: well the occultist and diabolist um the diabolist was less of a focus on that the occultist was more just me trying to get an article published because it was before i was the editor of E insider and if you're a game designer it's great to do E insider work because uh, all they're paying for is a one-year exclusivity license and then the exclusivity is gone you can do whatever you want with your words so like i love writing for them because hey i got paid in the fir- first part and then later on i could plan like oh okay well I know I've got these two classes where you're basically playing an evil character coming down the line. What can I do with that? Um yeah, I mean it's more about uh hitting that like original concept uh part of the, the something that's not already covered in the core rules. Um I don't know why I fall back on monsters for that. Probably because I enjoy I enjoyed Savage Species a lot from the 3.0. Like it was broken, but it was yeah. a fun book, right? Yeah, it <laughs> it was. was nobody will say it wasn't a fun book. Um and uh yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's something that hasn't really been um properly addressed in 5e. Like they had the Beastmaster and then they revised Ranger Beastmaster. Um I'm playing one of those too. I'm not wildly <laughs> enthralled with it the way I am with mm. my monster tamer. So, you know. Uh it's just a part of design that had, hadn't been hadn't been fully uh fully explored.
3: Yeah. So
2: I'm yeah. exploring it.
0: Are you doing? Are you planning on doing like more monster style classes that are like actually? I mean, because one of the things that I said, I think it was even like last week, I was like, I probably wouldn't be interested in playing another game of D and D unless somebody let me play a mind flare.
2: So uh, we kind of have something in, along those lines. Uh, I can't handle mind flares because mind flares are not um, open gaming license content. They are <laughs> copyrighted. But uh, you could definitely make a Mind flare version for... Uh, there's this thing in Book of Exotic Darkness. I actually didn't design this part. It's a prestige class made in eight levels called a Dark Transformation Prestige Class. It's designed by Luis Loza, who now is a full-time designer over at Paizo. Love Luis, he's great. Uh, and yeah, you use it to, after I think fifth levels, when you can start taking it, transform yourself permanently into a Lich, Dragon, Golem, Ooze, or Rakshasa. And you could definitely add Mind flare to that list uh, and tweak... Tweak some of the some of the stuff to uh, make it fit. So I'd say go go check out the Book of True Evil or Book of All Darkness. They're both in there.
3: I can't help feel like there's a slight, you know, imbalance there. It's like you can be a dragon or a news.
2: I, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Numbers-wise, they're the same, and you don't change into, like, an ancient dragon.
3: I know, but there's something about being a dragon compared to being an ooze. Like, the one exception I think that anybody would agree on would be, okay, maybe if you're kind of the goo girl kind of thing, there there's definitely a market for that, but otherwise... Nah. That is not a fair, fair comparison. Any. Even if they have the same stats.
2: Let me see what it is. No, I don't want to get it wrong and put movies in a poor light. Eh, what do we got? Dark transformation, abyssal. Oh no, it was fiend, not ooze. My bad. Yeah, it was you can change to a fiend, dragon, our demon, devil, dragon, golem, lich, or rakshasa. Okay, that. that okay, yeah. Okay, I'll give it to. you. I think. Oh no, the occultist has an ooze version. The occultist is a whole twenty level class. It's not a prestige class. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. The occultist also has a like werewolf and vampire and um nightmare and horror and abomination versions. Are those
0: are those treated like those are the archetypes?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, the, those are the archetypes for the occultist. Yeah, got it, got it, got it. Interesting. The occultist appears in Book of the Law of Darkness and a touch more class. And somebody asked if you could use it in Vast Cavia, and I, I told them, like, yeah, why not? Um, as long as I, I would, like, remove some stuff, like there's ceremonial relics you're supposed to use, which don't make as much sense in a primitive world. But um, other than that...
0: I mean, ceremonial relics in terms of, like, like codified magic type stuff, or...? or...
2: Uh, it's a toolkit that they get access to, and then they have to use to use some of their features. Um, one of which is, like, uh, you can change... you get get access to more saving throw proficiencies and you can use your ceremonial relics to make a check and change it for like uh, once a week to change around which ones you want to have extra stuff for. And if you look up Occultist 5e, which version of this came up on D&D wiki? This is the... Oh, this is the original version that is not as good. But yeah, you can find it for free if you Google Occultist 5e.
0: Cool. Um... How, so you've been doing this stuff for mostly fifth edition the last couple products?
2: Yeah, like three and a half years or so.
0: Is there anything about fifth edition that you would that you would change like structurally or that you wish was different or what I think the
2: paywall that they've set up to like encourage DM's guild is very stupid and destructive. I would remove that. Like the, they had one update to the system's references document, and otherwise there have been no additions or changes to the core rules uh, for third-party publishers that don't want to use DMs Guild. Um, I would, I would definitely change that. Uh, structurally, I'm okay with proficiency bonuses. Um, I would have liked to have seen like some, some pulling the curtain away. There's some like Wizard of Oz stuff going on mechanically that at this point i I I'm pretty sure I understand, but like there didn't need to be this large learning curve, they could have just done it right. Uh, one thing that bothers me is the uh, <laughs> the monster rubric in the Dungeon Master's Guide is pretty much useless. Uh, the the big chart on page i think it's 274 284 it's like this is the crs this is how much damage it should do this is the equation you do to figure out cr but caveat it's really more of an art than a science um there's this guy who runs a blog of holding um if you look up blog of holding actually i can find the thing you can just give links to people uh he did this great he took all of the numbers of all of the monsters in the monster manual and he put them in an excel sheet and he made like an actual rubric using the real numbers in the monster manual and it's much more accurate when you're building stuff uh to use oh, his okay. i remember
0: this yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah. so whenever i build something um in addition to play testing it i double balance it off of like what the rubric and the dmg says and then also what the blog holding rubric says so I mean I would I think we all got like as a as a designer is uh, Pathfinder spoiled us because the monster creation rules in Pathfinder were so tight they were so good um, and then fifth edition they they just kind of throw their hands in the air and they're like but it's an art <laughs> uh, yeah
0: yeah I, that was the sort of one of the things about fifth edition that really uh, threw me was they went away from the fourth edition encounter design which was so easy and GM friendly and you could very easily tell how difficult something was going to be and how, I mean, how fun it was going to be. And uh, uh, and then they went away from this, this eyeballing it with challenge rating, and I couldn't for the life of me figure out why they made that design decision. So, it seemed so weird.
2: I think it was an acceptance that they just didn't want to invest in organized play, man. See, that, that, I don't
0: buy that, though, because most of their, most of their product line, most of their everything is geared towards
2: organized play. It's it's really kind of like. Is it though? Weird. Well, I mean, because they like don't they don't fun. even do their own organized play anymore. They don't. They have Baldman. Is it Goodman Games or Baldman Games? It's one of those. It's one of those two runs the fifth edition Adventures League now. Hmm. Is it Goodman? I bet it's Goodman. I think Goodman Games. Yeah. Yeah, and right. then Baldman does the the conversions of old adventures.
0: I always I think get they're a mix. fine, like outsourcing that particular thing but what they i think their goal is to get it played in game stores essentially at infinitum i
2: i i think that's i think that's what you're talking about is paizo's business model like uh next time you're at gen con uh if you if you ever go or get to go i think it's the sackage ballroom uh i walked in there and uh no joke there was like over a thousand people all continuously playing in the same game so the GMs were giving up hand signals to people roving through the crowd who were relaying that information to a central desk that would announce changes to like the overall environment in the mega dungeon that all of these like hundreds of tables were simultaneously playing in. It was insane.
0: It was that insane. is pretty nuts. But I'm, Well, I guess I'm speaking of my experience. When I see most of the games that take place in the game stores that I go to are 5th edition tables, like and they seem to be very well supported with um either product or ancillary product that's i feel like i'm still seeing a lot of push for this thing so that's where i'm getting it from
2: maybe i i don't know i i i i know stores here have tried to run adventures league and i'm sure there are still some adventures league games going on but like the pathfinder society people kept on trucking up until second edition i'm pretty sure they're still trucking
0: yeah that's interesting, yeah, because it, maybe it's a regional thing, too, because, um, I don't know, there's there's a large, like, it's hard to find any games well, out.
2: My, in my point is that, like, Wizards of the Coast is not directly paying any staff to run organized play stuff. Paizo has, like, a team of six people or more who are doing that full-time. Okay,
0: okay yeah, that's a big difference, yeah, sure.
2: And Pizo needs that. They have this subscription based model for like the one adventure they release every month and like it's it's a whole it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing they got over there. It's it's good for them and it works, but like it requires to do it correctly and to do it well and and to keep uh, everything together, it requires um a lot of attention. And I it's Watsi doesn't want to spend they want to spend as little money as possible.
0: That's what I keep hearing, yeah. That the the Wizard of the Coasts and, and well Hasbro really Hasbro, wants yeah. to yeah, once more than anything else, Hasbro. This it's like this is the minimal investment, um, and then what can we get out of this this tiny investment? Of like, I don't know how big the D and D team is right now. I...
2: No idea. I know they have the convention thing now, not the pseudo convention. I, I don't even know how to describe what the Indie Live is. Uh, media event. Yeah, I would uh if I was if I had more control over the, the core 5e line or if I had any say in it at all, I would up the production of uh of books and um try to get more stuff into the core rules that are accessible to third-party publishers outside of their uh content creation market, I guess we'll call it. Mm-hmm.
0: Design-wise, is there anything you'd change about fifth edition?
2: Mm-hmm. Um so they like, there's very light touching upon of flat bonuses. Um, I don't think it needs to be that light. I think you could bound it and include more flat bonuses. Because uh, like the full range, you can see them in Scry. It's like plus minus one, plus minus two, plus minus five, plus minus ten. Um, I don't think you need the plus minus ten. But I think that including more plus one to plus five bonuses inside of class features and uh, feats and stuff would be a good move. I would do that.
0: I feel like that was, I, I mean, obviously they designed that like how the system largely and sort of sort of used uh, advantage and disadvantage to suck up all that yeah. that uh, those modifiers.
2: It's plus, plus five, minus five. Everybody, it's just yeah. a little bit different, but that's that's what disadvantage advantage is.
3: Yeah, it comes. It works out to four point five, but it also gives a very big difference on the uh, natural oh, likelihood of in critical 20s. hits. Yeah. It's the difference between like a 5% chance or a 10% chance on the upside or a 5% and a half a percent chance on the negative. Actually, no, it was point twenty five percent Wow. What else? Anyway. But like, yeah.
0: That's, that's, yeah. So, so you feel like bringing smaller modifiers back would do, um, would h- help the granularity of abilities?
2: Yeah, I think like trying to pigeonhole everything to advantage-disadvantage, uh, especially with bound accuracy, is uh, a questionable. questionable avenue of design. Oh,
3: well, yeah, especially with um, spells.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's accessible, no but doubt.
3: It, it's accessible, but it kind of makes everything kind of feel the same, I found.
2: Mm-hmm. Like. Oh, and the fact that advantages, disadvantages, and stack is so stupid. Uh, I can't get over that. That bothers me. I changed that immediately.
3: Yeah, it gets kind of silly because then it's like, okay, you have a mage and you have a rogue, we'll say. And they both give advantage for doing different things. And it's like, okay, these cannot stack. They do the same thing. It's like, all of your stuff starts feeling a little bit samey in there. It's a little too homogenized. At least that was my opinion of it.
2: Why is it that if I have... Uh, you know, I'm blind firing through a, a, a snowstorm at like long range, but like one thing gives me advantage that it's just like a regular roll. <laughs> right. Like why why? Like why? Why? Like you, you you applied weight over here and then you applied three times as much weight on the other side, but the balances aren't moved like why?
1: Yeah, that
2: Yeah,
1: I I, I
0: I uh I kinda like how Shadow of the Demon Lord did I think a, a much cleaner take on that. Mechanic mm-hmm. with the, Banes the and, and, Banes. and Banes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Banes and wounds. I, I liked that. A bit I was that the actually. first
2: uh, licensed publisher for uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord too. Hey, cool, man, nice. Yeah, Miss Fukuma appears in Shadow of the Demon Lord, as does uh, Book of the of Darkness. Cool. Yeah, I, I like I like Shadow of the Demon Lord quite a bit. Yeah, it's fun. The initiative system is brilliant. Yes, but we should just always be using that. That's
0: yeah, I, I agree. Generally speaking, in the games that I've run. Since then, I've just tossed initiative out the window and done something procedural or something very close to the way they do that. They do it in Shadow Demon Lord. I think it's just way better.
2: It's like for people who are uniniti- initiated, it's like, am I doing a fast turn? Okay, well, I don't get to move, but I get an action. Or am I doing a slow turn and I get to move and take an action? And then, okay, people are taking fast turns. Who wants to go first? Who wants to go last? Okay, do your stuff. Monsters go. People on the slow turns. Who wants to go first? Who wants to go less? okay, top of the next round boom that's it
0: it's it's so much simpler and uh I feel like there's and it also that makes it interesting because it puts a tactical choice in the hands of the player rather than a, the the you know like oh, I have to eat a random one and yeah. None of my shit goes off because everything's Aww. dead before I get to go. You know, it's
2: unfortunately, like... our tank doesn't have a good dex modifier, and he rolled low, so we're all just gonna hold our actions until the tank goes. Is <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: or I... just situations
2: like that. Yeah,
3: I never really understood the whole roll for initiative thing. Like, it has never actually added anything beneficial to the game, as far as I've been able to tell.
2: When you had more control over your initiative bonus, I felt like it did. Like, so if I went out of my way to have a character who has an initiative bonus of, like, plus 12, and everybody else is rolling a plus 2, it makes a big difference. He's almost always going to get to go first, and he could have abilities that, you know, reflect that or depend upon that. But when it's like, you only get this one one mechanic that can affect your initiative, it... it yeah. What's the it's point of It's not even
3: it? that. It's like, even when you have things like that, then it still had... It didn't really add anything. Like, the person who has like the plus 12 to your initiative it's like well they're usually going to go first but then you get like somebody who just happens to have really bad roles on their initiative for some reason it's like the last four fights in a row the fastest per- person around has gone dead last it's like that feels really awkward like it, it, it just doesn't seem to make sense like why not just use the flat modifier It's always the weirdest thing to me
2: I mean, it makes sense to me for when when you can have when you have more influence over the modifier. I'm more about having a randomized initiative, but like the less control that you can, like the fewer resources you can put into that aspect of combat, the less sense it makes to have that aspect of combat being randomized.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. Like the if you're going to give players a sandbox, at least let them play in it. You know. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah it's just if you're going to give people. More control and more modifiers, more things they can do to control the randomized aspect. Like you're basically removing the randomized aspect from it. In which case, don't use the randomizing.
2: Well, no, it's, mm, yeah. When there's no point, to, like when when it, when it, the point of like re- removing the randomization element is that you are expending part of your design resources to do that. So it's one of like six or seven. Um, you know, yeah. uh, Sorry, the D- Discord app, I guess, flashes at you when someone messages. I, I just, uh, yeah. Sorry. Um. So yeah, like there's like six or you know however many aspects of design uh, you can put weight onto a character sheet. Um, oh, damn it! He just ruined that. <laughs>
3: yeah. No, I, I get where you're coming from, and I. I
2: no, I mean, it, so the best the best part about that, like Shadowrun, the. Shadow of the Demon, Shadow Run of the Demon Lord, Shadow of the Demon Lord initiative system is uh, the teamwork aspect, right? So if you're constantly negotiating with everyone else for when you're going to go and what kind of turn you're going to take, you end up doing more teamworking than when you're just rolling randomly. And that's that was a cool thing that I hadn't anticipated until I had started playing Shadow of the Demon Lord.
0: Yeah, I, well, I think anytime you hand players a bit of a tactical choice um, and let them coordinate. Uh... And give them some incentive. I think that's you get that that emergent play that you generally want out of. That's what people want out of that like you know simple but deep type gameplay where
3: you give them a choice and the choice actually matters. <gasps>
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Where, where
2: I liked his uh, the character creation system was really neat too. It took me a little while to wrap my head around it, but like once I did, I was like, oh.
0: Yeah, and and the class building where you're you're just selecting from these like you know these these modular pieces that uh, it, uh, you know when you end up you're done with this really interesting and functional that's the interest that's the best part like a functional <clears throat> conglomeration of totally weird and wacky shit.
2: It was like halfway to the like from it was like a mix of the careers thing mm-hmm. that you see in uh, Traveler or what's old is new and like traditional d twenty class structure
1: yeah pretty cool pretty cool take on it um some other stuff that i wanted to ask you about um was actually your transition or i guess your uh evolution doing your own indie stuff or just in terms of making the contacts that you've had to make in terms of getting your games in game stores um what advice would you give to people that are looking to do the same sort of thing? Like, are there networking opportunities that you really found like propelled you forward? Um, just going to game stores. What kind of advice do you have for people looking to do their own independent <sighs> RPG work?
3: Specifically, legal things. Nothing like kidnapping <laughs> the CEO's kids from school. Okay.
1: Right. That's for after the
2: podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, I. Do not like conventions very much, and I am in the point where I don't have to go. But for the la- the first couple of years, I went to all the conventions I could. Gen is really important. If you want to be serious about it, you got to go to GenCon. Uh, yeah. It's going to cost you a stupid amount of money, and you probably won't enjoy it very much. But um, yeah, you got to go.
3: Damn it! <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I could tell you how to do it really cheap, um, but like, it's not necessarily safe. Um, so, uh, if you're in Indianapolis by La Quinta Inn and Suites, uh, there's the sheriff's headquarters and across the street from the sheriff's headquarters. And when I say sheriff's headquarters, it's like the sheriff's headquarters of the whole state. Uh, there's this open air parking lot. You can park your car there for like $6 a day. As long as you don't move the car, it stays at $6 a day. So, uh, I took my parents' van. I threw a mattress in the back and I stayed in the parking lot for like four days. It was awesome. Like straight up, it was awesome. The equipment shed for the sheriffs are is in the parking lot, so occasionally cops drive through, and they also have a porta potty. And like one time when I was coming out, a helicopter was landing like a hundred feet away. So like, it was it was genuinely kind of nice to stay. And like that was the closest I got to a person the whole time in the night. So like, yeah, you got like actual privacy while seventy thousand extra people descend on the city. Um Oh Yeah, and it's super cheap that way. Otherwise, you're looking at like $350, 400 a night for a hotel room downtown. And if you're not downtown, then maybe you get away with 150 or $200 a night outside the city, but then you got to Uber back and forth and like... Oh, yeah. No. If I ever do Gen Con again and uh, even if somebody offers to buy my hotel room, I might just do the parking lot honestly. Uh, but I'm also <laughs> very intimidating and not going to get mugged so like you know that that should should factor in if you're worried about somebody taking your stuff don't do that
1: okay um fair
2: uh what else would i tell you yeah you gotta go gen con uh you gotta do events you gotta go hit up the bars and stuff after uh, the convention hall closes um, you got to make contacts in the dealer's room. If you want to get a publisher to take you seriously, do not try to impress them with like a timeline of your world or some of the artwork you got. Right. Uh, well, actually artwork's not a bad idea, but like your manuscript, they're not really interested. Uh, what they would like to see is a budget. If you roll up and you're like, it's going to cost this much to make it. And here's how um, that will get their attention because it shows that you're like serious, uh, that you understand that planning is involved um, that you understand the costs involved, like that you're going to take a lot of the precarious security and responsibilities of publishing into account, and uh, not be a liability but an asset.
3: The one thing I'd want to check on that is the uh, the self-publishing side, mm. instead of just selling it to a publisher.
2: Well, uh, like I, I touched on earlier, when I was saying Owen releases one uh, PDF a week, fifty-two a year that's the way to do it because you got to get your name out there. You got to get your name out there often and you need to not set a high bar for entry for people who don't know you as a, as a customer. So like um, I get away with selling expensive big ass books because I'm tied up with publishers and people trust legendary games or storm bunny studios or rogue genius games owned by Owen Casey Stevens. So they're like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, if, if Owen's selling this and like, it must be worth $50, right? Because I'm, I'm kind of like tied off to their ships. If I was on my own ship, it's a whole different thing. You got to build an audience. And the way you build an audience is with uh, hors d'oeuvres, not full meals.
1: Fair. Mm.
2: Also, if you're trying to make a campaign setting, uh, I'm teaching a course for the RPG Writer Workshop that I think starts uh, next month, uh, where Ooh, I will cool. help you make a campaign setting primer.
1: Oh, that's awesome. I had signed up for that program uh, last time it ran.
2: Yeah, that was for making an adventure module. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Mine's a mini course separate from that. Uh, but yeah, they're they're doing the, the adventure one now if you want to sign up. Or anyone listening wants to sign up. Now is an opportunity to sign-ups are going on.
0: <laughs>
1: you poor fool. There's no one listening.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we have one listener. And they're dedicated. They've made multiple accounts. Yeah um uh <laughs> in terms of um how you actually made these contacts like how you got your first game picked up um was it through conventions or did you already have sort of a network of people that you met throughout your your time gaming that you were able to to access
2: let me see um i mean the first stuff i sold was all just like me pitching in emails okay uh, to people i'd never met before um the first campaign setting that I sold, or I mean, got a publisher. So, I, like, <laughs> I own my stuff. The right. publishers license it from me. It's a very weird arrangement, almost nobody else has. Um, that was me traveling out to Seattle and meeting Owen and his wife, uh, LJ, and uh, us like getting dinner and me convincing them that I'm awesome. Uh, <laughs> that was tied into PyZocon, which is also in, in Seattle. So. Uh, after that uh, after that I mean it's just kind of hanging out on Facebook is generally much more better for the mainstream RPGs because the the, the people with money spending money on RPGs are are not 19 uh, year olds um, I'm sure I mean sure I'm, I'm sure some of them buy books but like you know mostly you're looking at 30 to 50 60 year old folks um, and yeah Facebook is the older person social media Twitter can be good too uh but uh I found less so and Reddit is a very, very, very mixed bag.
3: That suddenly explains why Facebook is so big on RPGs. I'd always wondered why that was.
2: Yep. And I found Discord can be useful, but like, you know I, I again, mixed bag like Reddit. Not as right. negative as Reddit, thank God.
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Reddit Reddit can be pretty pretty harsh. Yeah.
2: Moz Isley canteen over there, man.
1: I don't like you either
2: (laughs) (laughs) and local conventions are good too you won't necessarily run into publishers at local conventions but I found my best artist contacts at local conventions Okay. Indy Martin uh, is amazing if you need to hire somebody for artwork hire Indy Martin Uh, it's tortoise and hair creations uh, and it's INDI Martin uh, yeah, she can do everything. She's great. I found her at a convention. Found Jacob Blackman through Owen. Found Nathaniel Bachelor through his dad at a video game convention. Oh, I'm sorry, at an anime convention in the video game room. That's what it was. Um yeah, so yeah, hit your hit your local cons. You'll you'll find some some gems in the rough there. It's all
3: the social networking.
2: Yes. And eventually you hit a point where you don't have to, and then you can hide back in your hole and it's great.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, it sounds like you've curated a good list of um, contacts already, and a lot of people that follow you. So it seems like it's a lot easier for you now to just maintain the following that you have and keep growing people by word of mouth. It's probably not as, uh, you know, much of a stressor for you to think about. Uh, do I have to go to this convention? That. Well, Tried I mean, if
2: I out. wasn't if I wasn't tied off to their ships, I might have to be going to conventions. Too. Yeah, that makes sense. I am
3: wondering. Now, pretty much everything that you've done for the most part has been working on somebody else's setting, somebody else's uh, game that you create a setting for. If you had full autonomy, you could basically do whatever you wanted. You had full budget to spend whatever you felt like. What would you actually... What would you actually do for like just a final like setup for your career like if you could just work on this like one IP forever how what would you do
2: oh, I have to pick one huh? if I had to pick one I would probably pick Myths of Akuma and I would push that into uh, computer role playing games Eventually, after I had maybe maybe 50 books otherwise, lore-wise, to support it. And uh, also a comic. Yeah, for sure, a comic for Miss Fukuma. OK, cool. Now, why that one? Uh, that's the one that is easiest for me to write. Um, it's not like there's less thought involved. It just comes naturally and much faster. Um, one of the adventures, the uh, cursed soul, of the scorpion samurai, uh, start to finish, like me outlining it to me sending in the print file one week, which is insane. That's the work of like like mult like a team of of eight people for a month. I did in like a week just because like Misafukuma just hits my vibes real good. Um, it's an eastern fantasy noir steampunk world, and uh, everyone's turning into to, to zombie monsters if you ever seen um iron fortress of Capenary? i saw that last year it's very it, it's similar in that the zombies are fast they're quick and uh the technology that might save everybody everyone is afraid of because the myths also cause stuff to prematurely turn into super mogami uh which are a uh, type of yokai in japan it's basically just an, a mimic changes stuff into mimics so like uh war machines for instance like that's a really great gun until like it changes into a mimic, and then its behavior is determined by how it was treated in life, and it was in battle a lot, and it was probably just going to be murderous and try to kill you. So, yeah. <clears throat> Love I me, me.
3: It, I mean, that makes perfect sense why you, you know, take very good care of your gun after you you know, go to war! <laughs> you know, pat it, give it, like, you know, full cleaning twice a day.
2: <laughs> uh, There's a bard archetype called the Gun Priest, and that is literally one of the things that you have to do. Like, you treat your gun as a reverent holy object. Yeah. I
3: mean, I can't blame them if it's going to turn into a monster at some point.
2: Uh, There's a feat you can take, so if you have, like, a prosthetic, uh, it changes into a Tsukumagami. Like, yeah. Miss Fukuma. I'm like, ooh. Um, What I was sending screenshots earlier today is the Imperial Matchmaker adventure that I've been working on for uh God, like two plus years and I'm finally in layout and it's on like page two hundred and sixty two and I'm like in chapter four and a half. Like, oh God, I can't wait to finish that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: you have a really prolific output, it seems like. What's your what's your word count per day like? I mean if you're doing like stuff like in a week.
2: Mm-hmm. Like yeah that no that rate. was a uh that, that was that a, a, like not was all that fast kind of an exception <laughs> yeah it was, it was kind of an exception and, and i forgot to put the water dragon in there so like there there are stats in the core book for the water dragon but not in course curse soul scorpion samurai and you totally need it so like i think i added it as a free download but um uh if you're working at paizo or i don't know about watsi but i know paizo if you're writing you should be hitting three thousand words a day uh so any day that i'm writing i try to hit five um it was much easier when I smoked cigarettes and I desperately miss cigarettes. So, um yeah. It's rough. Mm. Spend a lot of time writing whenever it's a writing day. Yeah, no, three thousand and and yeah. Yeah. I mean like outline your stuff and get into the habit of writing every day. It's a skill. Just like, you know, shooting mm-hmm. hoops with a basketball. So every day you don't do it, you're kinda lose a little bit of skill. So just Even if you don't write a lot, write something every single day and uh, you'll have an easier time when you are on a writing day. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Honing and just sort of like keeping the knife sharp, even if you're not using it. Good idea. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, For the kind of stuff that you're doing, do you find that um, you have to do a lot of pre planning or does, because there's an existing framework, And you're sort of um, filling in, uh, you know, you're doing stat blocks and and stuff like that and and adventure paths and stuff like that. Um, There's, but you're not creating like systems a lot, it seems like. When you're doing systems, what's what's your process like? Because you can't really do, like doing 5,000 words a day on systems doesn't strike me as possible or tenable because there's just a lot of, like, thinking that has to go on. Um, so so is your process different, or do you still do, like, 5,000 and then, like, just go back and hack away at it?
2: Well, I mean, you go back and hack
0: away at everything,
2: like whether it's systems or whatever. Like, you're going to revise stuff. It's just the nature of writing. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, what I did now. So what did I do? I printed out old and news uh, rough drafts, Uh, which I think cost me, like, an ink cartridge. Uh, Then I read through them all. (sighs) How much planning did I end up actually doing for that? I think it was maybe 10 days of planning for writing now. But that wasn't, like, I wasn't starting from scratch, you know? Like, I had had two things that I had to match everything up with. Um, So it was, like, identifying what had already been covered and what hadn't, like, figuring out, like, oh, organizations, he hasn't done organizations yet. Okay, well. Make a make that that'll make sense for the the rest of the the pastiche year. here. Um, I don't know if I was doing it from scratch again, like if I were to bill like I guess when I did get to billing time just all again from scratch, I'll probably shoot for like at least segmenting chapters out and if if not just knocking out a chapter a day, right so if it's I know it's gonna be like a short chapter that's like gm advice. Uh, that's something that you could probably write 5,000 words for a day. 5,000 words will cover minimum of 12 pages. Um, oh, no, actually, minimum of 10. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh no, that wouldn't cover 10, would it? Yeah, it depends on so many different things. Depends on uh,
3: the size of the page.
2: Yeah, size of the page, size of your font, how many images are on it, et cetera, et cetera. I tend to do uh, an art schedule of 0.5. So every like facing page should have at least one illustration. Um, so in in my case,
1: it would be at least 10 pages, uh,
2: but not for everybody. And that goes into planning. So that that's book planning and like figuring out what your budget is. That's something you got to do before you sit down, (laughs) before you sit down and start outlining chapters, I would sit down and start working out a budget. Like, okay, so I know I'm going to need 300 pages and then know how much of that page is going to be taken up by art. And that leaves you, I mean, if you're using a 0.5 schedule, that's 150 pages have art on them assuming quarter-page sizes on A4 page, so an 8.5 by 11 inch, and you're paying for quarter-size illustrations, and you get uh, 150 of those. Uh, those will eat up, uh,
1: mm-hmm. say, being...
2: Well, I mean, yeah, obviously a lot of money. You can you get away with some stock, and like depending on like what the themes and subjects are, you, uh, public domain. So, like, Medieval Fantasy, there's a ton of really great uh, Western Renaissance art that you can use that's totally free. Uh, you can find it on Wikimedia Commons. Um, if it's uh, Eastern Fantasy, uh, I use a bunch of ukiyo e uh, woodblock print art from Japan. Uh, if it's uh, Deco, uh, the WEP projects here that FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, ran in the 30s, that's all public domain artwork. It's all Deco. Um, so you can be smart about it and and cut your costs down. But yeah, art of full, far and away is still the most expensive thing in eight book.
3: Yeah, don't so. do what I did and pick to choose like all unique player oh, species. Yeah, in which case, you can't use Stalker.
2: <laughs> no. Then yeah.
3: It was a bad. De- yeah. No, it was a good decision. It was just. Well, even it's then, you
2: could be smart about it, right? Like have have them tra- send over the characters in a separate layer that's transparent background, and you can maybe reprint that in another product or elsewhere in a different perspective where you flip it, right? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I made sure that every single one of the pictures I got is always in. That I get like the PSD or whatever files there they're using, so that I can change stuff later if I need to. Um,
2: but yeah, going on the example, 150 pages of the quarter page art. Right? Each of those effectively take up, uh, like we'll say you're doing 800 words uh, to the page, which is what Paizo's maximum is. Uh, and that's very dense, by the way. 800 words to the page is a very dense page of text. Um, then 200 pages or 150 pages have 200 words less each. And then that leaves you with a you know final word count of etc. And then I would compartmentalize that into how much room I have for the bestiary chapter versus the equipment chapter versus this or that chapter for a core core yeah. rule book.
3: Quick reference for our listener is like a standard novel page holds about two hundred and fifty to three hundred words. Uh, if you're using like a full sized eight and a half by eleven. Sheet of paper, like most of the uh, large-scale print books, like the D and D books, you can you can fit a thousand words on a page. It's it's about nine hundred and fifty, roughly. But that's if it's just pure text and you don't have like any headers or sections. And you're written. using a
2: very forgiving font and very thin, like yeah. line spacing, and yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, there's I, there's a lot of stuff like that goes into it, but
2: I've done that and people will get very mad at you. <laughs>
3: don't yeah. don't do that, but that's basically where your word count minimum and maximum are. Yeah.
2: Now I'm curious how many words I would have if I was doing that the way I was saying I was gonna do it. So one hundred fifty times six hundred plus uh what? Two Ninety thousand, and then eight hundred tens, one fifty. Okay, so that'd be like two hundred ten thousand words. That's definitely enough to make a very beefy core rulebook. Yeah,
3: definitely. Keep in mind again, a standard novel is usually about forty thousand words. If you're doing like a big four hundred page, like thick novel or so for like fantasy novel you 're looking at about a hundred thousand hundred and twenty thousand yeah so these are really dense uh rule books compared to a novel
2: whenever I go to make a, a book even and it's mostly setting books that I make um like I'm always trying to maximize the value that people get out of it so like yeah uh, every page is worth I think more than ten cents a page but that's the general premise for pricing in RPGs like a uh, People will set their prices at, are uh, uh, generally using like a, a metric of okay, well, 10 cents per page, how many pages is it? Okay,
3: $40. Yeah, I've heard the 10 cents a page only goes up to like the first 100 pages or so, and then like the formula changes. Yeah, I don't know what it goes after that though.
2: I mean, I'm, I'm I just try to price competitively and at a thing that where I think people who don't really know yet whether I'm solid. Like, yeah, it, it's measuring where the the tolerance of the of a customer is difficult.
0: Are there limits you've found that things that you are that are definite no goes for you at this point, or um, um
2: uh, I mean, this is probably going to be my last five e setting because I'm really tired of Watsy's uh, treatment and behavior with. With uh, freelancers and thir- more importantly, third-party publishers. Uh, so I'm going to convert everything over to what's old is new next, actually. Okay, interesting. Yep. Start nice. with CapCore 2099.
0: <laughs> sweet man. Does the um, w- w- getting out of? So are you going to be like sort of like getting out of the fifth edition like adventure writing game? I mean,
2: I'll probably keep on editing for E Insider as long as E Insider is paying me commensurably. Um, and then uh, I have a series on Ian world where I make mythological figures every week uh, what was last week oh God I can't even remember what was it no oh last week was hey Redden Barbosa who is this uh, really awesome Turkish pirate but um, neither here nor there I'll probably keep doing those uh, just because they, they pay well and are regular uh, but I mean my focus will be converting all my stuff over to one system so including Veranthea codex and then uh they all are connected and so i'm going to probably start exploring that but that's easily a year year and a half two years away interesting
0: cool man well unless you got anything else you want to flog uh i think that's
2: uh, uh check out vast caviar there's a free preview pdf on the uh the page it's 40 pages of awesome stuff including like 14 monsters i think it is and mm-hmm. um class archetype uh two races mongrel folk and then tino car which are like a, a dinosaur people
0: a lot of dinosaur conani yeah. goodness in there
2: you can never have enough dinosaurs
0: you can never have enough dinosaurs and we can find you at MikeMiler.com.
2: yep MikeMiler.com. um at MikeMiler two on twitter mm-hmm. um vast Cavia has a website too vascavia.com um yeah wait man well thanks for coming on and thanks for sharing
0: uh your insights into freelancing and adventure writing and like some of the more work a day like the numbers of like this is what you got to do this is what you got to churn out this is like mm-hmm. you know the boots on the ground type stuff is that's actually pretty interesting
1: yeah super useful yeah
2: yeah um thanks uh unfortunately pay is is just not not great, man. uh it gets better the the longer you're in the game, but um, it's when you're starting out, it's still like the same freaking pulp writer rate from nineteen oh five Well,
0: uh yeah, yeah, it's rough.
2: and uh if I could give anyone like overarching piece of advice is do not sell your your rights unless you're being paid commensurably for it. Right. So if somebody's going to pay you good money for something you're working on for them, that's great. But if you're like publishing your own stuff, don't do it on a content market. Or if you're doing it a content market, like keep in mind that like you don't own that and it's going to stop paying you at some point. And then you're not going to be able to do anything with it. If you're going to make intellectual property, own that shit.
0: Yeah. Like uh, Ray Charles, right? One of to own all the masters? Hell yes. Good idea. Good idea. All right. Well, for uh, Catrice, Mark, and myself, Rob. This has been uh, another episode of Flail Forward. Good night, everyone. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, or not, we're not picky, leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, and and Pornhub. Because why not? Got to go where your audience is, right? Good night, everyone.